Well, good morning. It is good to see all of you here this morning. I want to mention a couple of things. One is it's Father's Day, and so I want to wish all of you dads a happy Father's Day. Um, if you've got a bow tie for Father's Day, you can thank me later for that. Um, I was glad to pass on that information. If you need help tying it, I would recommend that you consult YouTube instead of me. Uh, it's much more helpful. The second thing that I want to mention is that uh, you'll probably notice some familiar faces that aren't with us this morning. Our youth group and their sponsors are in Houston, Texas at the Impact Church of Christ, working with an inner city ministry there. Uh, 31 uh, kids and sponsors went along. They had a safe trip there, arrived safely. And they have a very busy week ahead of them. So be praying for them, for the work that they'll be doing there that they'll impact lives, but also that their lives will be impacted by their time in Houston. So I really do covet your prayers for all of them. And let's pray together now. Father, we thank you for this beautiful day. Father, we thank you for being able to be together, and we thank you for the reason that we are here together, and that's your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, it is such an honor and a pleasure to be able to, to come into your presence to share a meal around the table, to fellowship with each other, and, Father, to learn more about your will for us. And, Father, we also don't take lightly the, the ability that we have to, to speak to you, to talk to you in prayer. And, Father, thank you for hearing our prayers. Father, I do pray that you'll be with our group that is in Houston. Father, bless them richly. Father, help them to, to serve um, just like Jesus served. Help them to put their their own lives aside as they seek to, to writ, enrich and touch the lives of those that are there in Houston. And just pray, Father, that because of what they do, your name will be glorified. And Father, we look forward to having them back among us and uh, the lessons that they will bring to us, the energy that they'll bring back. And Father, help that to energize us to be more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, that is our desire, is that we become more like your son, and our Savior, Jesus, who is the Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, we are in the fourth week of our summer sermon series that we're calling Face to Face with Jesus. We are looking at various encounters that people had with Jesus, people who came face to face with Jesus. And we're looking at how their lives were changed by their encounters with Jesus. But we're also doing that with an eye towards what that means for us, what we can learn and what we can apply from the encounters that they had with Jesus. So in the first week, we looked at the encounter that Jesus had with his apostles, with the twelve, and specifically with Peter. Jesus was walking along with them, and he asked them a question. He said, who do people say that I am? And their answer was, well, some people say you're Elijah. Some people say you're John the Baptist, who has come back, been raised from the dead. And some people say that you're a prophet. And then Jesus looked at them face to face, and he said, but who do you say that I am? Not surprisingly, it's Peter who spoke up and he said, you are the Christ. And in that encounter, we learned that who we say Jesus is, who we believe Jesus to be, defines in many ways who we are and who, say, who we say that we are. And in the second week, we looked at Jesus' encounters with John the Baptist. First, he encountered John the Baptist at the Jordan River when Jesus came to be baptized by John. And then we saw a second encounter while John was in prison as he sent some of his followers to ask Jesus a question, are you the one or should we continue looking? And from those encounters, especially the encounter at the Jordan River when, when 
Jesus was baptized by John and when the Spirit came down upon him and when God spoke, we saw that John's message of repentance and John's message of baptism for the forgiveness of sins was embraced. It was condoned. It was accepted by God the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And then last week, we talked about Jesus' encounter with a paralyzed man on the mat And also with the men who were on the roof who had lowered him down into Jesus' presence. And then also with some scribes who were in the crowd at that time listening to Jesus. And in that encounter, we saw that we as disciples should fill the role of those men on the roof. And we should always be seeking to bring people into the healing and forgiving presence of Jesus Christ. And then today we're going to talk about some encounters that Jesus had with a few different characters First with Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum. And then also an encounter with a woman who had been suffering for 12 years. And then an encounter that Jesus had with Jairus' terminally ill daughter. So let's take up that story this morning. Since we last encountered Jesus as he was dealing with the paralytic and the scribes and the men on the roof, Jesus hasn't traveled very far. He stayed in one particular area. He's continued to move around the Sea of Galilee. He's taken a trip across to the far shore. And there he cast numerous demons out of a man. And those demons went into a herd of pigs. And those pigs ran down the hill and were drowned in the sea. And as we pick up our story this morning, Jesus has crossed back to the home side of the Sea of Galilee. He's back at Capernaum. He's home And as you might expect in the wake of the healing of the paralyzed man, things are not the same in Capernaum. The town's a buzz. They're a buzz with talk about Jesus. They're energized with curiosity about Jesus because they know that he has healed the paralyzed man who was on the mat. So when Jesus arrives back in town, there's a curious crowd that immediately gathers around him on the shore. It's a crowd that's anxious to see what he might do next. It's a crowd that's wanting to hear what he might say next. It's a crowd that's looking for some more action from Jesus. And they don't have to wait long because Jairus shows up at the shore. And everybody there in that crowd would know Jairus because he's a ruler of the local synagogue. In fact, I would say that most of us know Jairus. Or at least we know people who are like Jairus. In fact, I would say that many of us can probably see much of Jairus in ourselves. See, Jairus was one of those successful and influential people. The life of the synagogue revolved around Jairus as a ruler of the synagogue. And in a town like Capernaum, the life of the town revolved around the synagogue. So Jairus was a central figure in the town. He's someone who was used to things going his way. He was someone who was used to being sought out by others when they had difficulties or when they had crises or when there were disputes that broke out. But that's not all about who Jairus was. Jairus was also a family man. Jairus was a dad. And part of his family was a 12-year-old daughter. We know that she was his only daughter. And those of you who are dads know that if there's one soft spot in our lives, if there's one place that we're vulnerable, one place that we're weak, it's when it comes to our daughters, especially if they're our only daughters. And in this case, Jairus' daughter is sick. In fact, she's terminally ill. 
And we have no doubt that like any loving parent, Jairus has done everything he can to bring healing to his daughter. He's pursued every avenue. He's consulted every doctor. He's chased down every lead. I'm sure he's spared no expense. But it's all been in vain. Because it's very clear that his 12-year-old daughter is about to die. But there's one path that he hasn't pursued. There's one avenue he hasn't gone down. And that's the man, Jesus. It's the man who's the talk of the town for healing a paralyzed man. It's a man that killed someone who is no doubt walking around Capernaum right now. Walking around Jairus' town. Now, make no mistake, under normal circumstances, Jairus would be firmly in the camp of the scribes. As a ruler of the synagogue, he would have been squarely in their camp as they accused Jesus of blasphemy because he claimed to have the power to forgive sins. But also make no mistake, these are not normal circumstances. He's a dad, and his daughter's dying And he also knows that when Jesus said to the man, take up your mat and walk, the man took up his mat and he walked. So Jairus went looking for Jesus. We'll be in Mark chapter 5, so you might want to turn there and stay there throughout the rest of the sermon. We'll start in verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him. My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Now I'm afraid that in our hurry to get to the climax of this story, we often miss out on some really dramatic and really important events that are occurring here at the beginning of the story. It's here at the beginning of the story we need to understand and recognize that by any measure of proper protocol, Jairus' direct approach to Jesus is undignified, and it's desperate. You see, a man of Jairus' position didn't normally act this way. I mean, that's why someone like Jairus had servants. Servants were the ones who took messages to people. Servants were the ones who went out to bring other people to their master's. Jairus and people like him didn't go and do that themselves. And a man of Jairus' stature wouldn't have normally thrown himself at Jesus' feet and begged for his help. And he especially wouldn't have behaved this way towards someone who had recently been accused of blasphemy. Accused of blasphemy by Jairus' buddies, the scribes. So Jairus is putting his reputation, he's putting his standing, he's putting his position, he's putting his credibility at stake when he approaches Jesus, when he seeks Jesus out and when he falls at his feet and when he begs for help. He's putting all of that at stake. But any concerns about ruining his position are overwhelmed by Jairus' concern for his daughter. He's Desperately looking for help. And when your daughter is dying, a lot of the things that at one time seemed so important just don't matter anymore. Including the theological debate about whether Jesus had the power to forgive sins. So the theological debates about Jesus' legitimacy, 
that were stirred up by his claim to be able to forgive sins are completely overcome by Jairus' faith. His faith in Jesus' power to heal. But they're also overcome by Jairus' recognition of his own helplessness, his own inability to help his daughter. Jairus' focus wasn't on Jesus' claim to be able to forgive sins. His focus was on Jesus' verifiable ability to heal. Jesus said, walk, and the man on the mat walked. Jairus is also focused on the stark reality that he knelt before Jesus as a man completely helpless. He knew his position couldn't heal his daughter. He knew his status couldn't heal his daughter. He knew his money couldn't heal his daughter. But he knew that Jesus could. So he said to Jesus, please come and put your hands on my daughter so that she will be healed and live I think we should also pause for a moment and look at this encounter through the eyes of Jesus' disciples. Because I think that Jesus' disciples would have viewed Jairus' intrusion as a tremendous opportunity. Jairus was the cleanest of the clean. Jairus was a Jew of the Jews. They had to be thinking, if we can only get Jairus on our side, if this ruler of the synagogue will be in our debt because our master has healed his daughter... Just think where that will lead us. Just think how legitimate that will make us. No more tense encounters with the scribes. Let's go heal the daughter. And so off they went. Verse 24. So Jesus went with Jairus, and a large crowd followed and passed and pressed around. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people... Crowding around you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Well, this is kind of like our story last week, a healing story that's unexpectedly interrupted. It's not interrupted this time by an offer of forgiveness or a theological debate, but it's interrupted by a a separate healing, a different healing. And when we stop and think about this portion of the story, we also know this woman, don't we? Or at least we know people who are like this woman. And maybe many of us can see ourselves in this woman. You know, she's one of those nameless, faceless people who have been pushed to the edges of society because of personal circumstances. Personal circumstances that have left them depleted and left them defeated. And they don't know where to turn for help. And because they've been pushed to the edges, they're easy to overlook. Even though they're all around us. And they're easy to see if we'll only choose to really look. She's had 12 years of suffering. 
She's had 12 years of being unclean and unable to be in contact with her community. She's had 12 years of expensive and fruitless searching for a cure. She's had 12 years of being treated as if she didn't really even exist. She, too, like Jairus, was desperate. And she, too, has heard about the man on the mat who Jesus healed. And she, too, had gone searching for Jesus. But she has a different plan. Her plan isn't like Jairus' plan. She doesn't want to come face to face with Jesus. She just wants to touch his clothes. No one needs to know. No one needs to see. Just a touch of his robe will be enough. But I think we need to understand that the woman's indirect approach of Jesus is equally as bold as Jairus' direct approach. Not because she risked her standing, not because she risked her reputation, because she doesn't have any standing. That's not what is risked here. But what she's risking is she may endanger, she may risk contaminating the healer, the very one that she's looking to, to heal her affliction. Her approach is bold because she risks contaminating Jesus Christ. Now, if you want all the details in the law about regulations considered, uh, concerning bleeding, monthly bleeding and ongoing bleeding, you can look at that in Leviticus 15. We're not going to do that this morning. But for our purposes, we need to recognize that this woman's blood flow made her unclean. It made her unclean under the law. And it would make any man who touched her unclean under the law. Make him unclean until evening even after he had washed his clothes and bathed himself, he'd be contaminated, made unclean. So this woman is taking the risk of making the very one who has the power to heal her incapable of healing her because of her touch, because of her unclean touch. But the woman's faith ultimately overcomes her fear, and she reached out and she touched Jesus And can't you just imagine the excitement? After 12 years of suffering, she can immediately tell that her plan worked. She's healed. One little touch of Jesus and she's cured. She's restored. But her joy is short-lived because Jesus stops and he asks the question, who touched my clothes? Can you imagine her fear? We're told that she trembled before Jesus when he turned and asked the question. I mean, from her perspective, what good could possibly come from a face-to-face meeting with Jesus now? She's already healed. Maybe now he'll chastise her here in public in front of other people. Maybe he'll take it back. Maybe he'll undo the healing. So she's afraid, but Jesus has no desire to confront the woman. He just seeks to welcome And bless her. Notice especially what he chooses to call her. He calls her daughter. I think that's a beautiful moment when Jesus turns to her and says, daughter. As Jesus is hurrying with a distraught dad to heal a dying daughter, Jesus demonstrates the same fatherly love, the same fatherly compassion, the same fatherly concern for this daughter as Jairus has for his daughter. Jesus said, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from all your suffering. You'll have to pardon me for a moment here, but I have to put myself in the sandals of the disciples at this point. 
And if they're like me, I have to believe that the woman's intrusion would have been seen by them as a bit of a nuisance. A bit of a nuisance because the woman was one of the permanently unclean. She was on the outer edges. She was among the fringe people. She is someone who had no opportunity to increase the legitimacy of Jesus and his followers. She had no power. She had no standing. And she was taking up time as they were on their way to urgent work, important work with Jairus and his daughter. So let's pause for a moment and let's consider a couple of questions that we probably should be having at this point in the story. Questions that arise because this is really Jairus' story. And it's really his daughter's story. It's not really the story of the woman who was healed. And that story has been interrupted. And now it seems that Jesus has been delayed in restoring the daughter. So the first question I think we should ask before we continue down the road in this story is, has the woman put the girl at risk by delaying Jesus and by depleting his power? Remember, the girl's condition is critical. The need is urgent. Time is critical. And the woman's healing has caused a delay. We should be wondering, will Jesus make it in time? But maybe more interesting is to consider the question of power. Now that the woman has used Jesus' power, now that Jesus has felt power come out of him and go to her to heal her, We should be asking, will he have enough power left to heal Jairus' daughter? So maybe our question as we proceed with the story is this. Has relieving 12 years of suffering come at the cost of a 12-year-old's life? Verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they had said, Jesus told Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to Jairus' home, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. At this they were completely astonished. So the answer to our question appears to be yes. Right? Relieving 12 years of suffering looks like it did cost a 12-year-old her life. See, to everyone but Jesus, the girl's death appears to be completely beyond the reach of a tardy and depleted rabbi. And I can only imagine the emotions that Jairus was feeling. Just when it seemed that salvation was at hand, his deepest and his darkest fears were realized. His daughter... His only daughter is dead. But then we discover something really remarkable about this dad, about Jairus. Because Jairus also chose faith over fear. Because he chose to continue on with Jesus. 
See, rather than take the advice of the men who had come from his house to send Jesus on his way, Jairus chose to take Jesus' advice. Ignore his fears and just believe. And that faith was rewarded. The faith was rewarded by the restoration of his daughter. So Jesus was able to relieve 12 years of suffering and give a 12-year-old back her life, restore her, because Jesus, our Savior, is unbounded by time, and he has unlimited power. I think there's something else to this story that we shouldn't miss right here. Jesus took the girl's hand. Jesus touched the girl. And when Jesus touched this dead and now unclean girl, I think Jesus demonstrated that he was more concerned about restoration than he was concerned about contamination. Jesus demonstrated that his ministry would be about the power of God to cleanse. It would be about the power of God to wash. It would be about God's desire and ability to restore. Jesus demonstrated that no power on earth is capable of overcoming God's power. In fact, in this story, we see that Jesus' power is so great, it even astonishes the people who already have great faith. Jairus had great faith in Jesus' power. Peter, James, and John had great faith in Jesus' power. But even they weren't prepared for Jesus to demonstrate that he had power even over death. And may we, as followers of Jesus Christ, and may we as a church never stop being amazed at the power of God that's expressed through Jesus Christ. Let's end our time together with just three additional applications from these face-to-face encounters that Jairus had, that his daughter had, and that the suffering woman had. The first thing is that we learn that Jesus shows no partiality. He loves the daughter of privilege, and he loves the daughter of poverty. And we, as disciples, should be the same. We should do the same. Right now, you're probably thinking about what James wrote in the second chapter of his book. He said, My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here is a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And then down a little bit in verse 8, he says, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Let's always follow in Jesus' steps and never show partiality. Second, let's all remember that entrance to God's kingdom is contingent on faith. It's not contingent on our power. It's not contingent on our position. It's not contingent on our wealth, our pedigree our race, our gender, or any other social distinction. Entrance into God's kingdom is contingent on faith. See, putting our faith in any of those other things is completely futile. We're all helpless without the healing and forgiving power 
of Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus that our faith must rest. It is faith in Jesus and only faith in Jesus that justifies us before God. And third, and finally, we learn from Jairus and the suffering woman that Jesus commends faith that acts. Faith that acts on the conviction that God has the power to resolve all situations. Jesus is looking for faith that takes action with the anticipation that God will act. The woman and Jairus didn't just believe that Jesus had the power to heal. They took action to bring Jesus in contact with their broken situations. Jairus sought out Jesus, and he followed Jesus, and he trusted his power even when it looked like it was completely hopeless. Faith that took action. The woman sought out Jesus. She ignored her fear. She reached out and touched him in complete faith that his power was great enough to heal with a simple touch. Her faith took action. And as followers of Jesus, our faith should be in their image, in the image of Jairus and in the image of the woman, faith that takes action. It should also be in the image of our spiritual fathers. We read about many of them in Hebrews chapter 11. Men and women who acted in faith. People who acted on their faith in confidence that God, power, would overcome every situation that they faced. So may we, as followers of Jesus, and may we as a church, may our belief be translated into action. Faithful action with complete confidence that God's power, that God's overwhelming power, The power that relieved 12 years of suffering. The power that restored a 12-year-old life. May we act in faith that that power still works today in the lives of his faithful followers. You may be here this morning. You may be desperately looking for the restoring touch of Jesus. If you are, let me say, you've come to the right place. You are in Jesus' presence. You are among people who have been restored by Jesus. And you are among people who have complete faith that he will restore you if you will just act in the faith, in the faith that Jesus wants to call you his son, in the faith that Jesus wants to call you his daughter. That's his desire. And we'd like nothing better than to help you become Jesus' child. Won't you let us know that your desire is to become Jesus' child? You can do that in a couple of ways. We're going to stand up and we're going to sing a song together. You can walk down to the front if you're comfortable doing that and let us know that you're searching for Jesus. We understand if you may not be comfortable in doing that. So you can also walk to the back and you can ask for help in finding room 104. It's a more private place where two of our elders, two godly men will be. They'll be waiting for you. And they would like nothing better than to talk to you about the healing power of Jesus Christ. Whatever your need is, please let us know as we stand and we sing a song.